But I tell you, as I come into the pulpit to preach, I was just reminded again that one of my favorite parts of preaching is the 30 minutes that happens right before I preach. I assume you know what I mean. You have no idea how my heart is encouraged to speak the Word of God as His people sing His praises. And as we are led in worship through prayer, I am delighted to be back in the pulpit with you again. And today we're going to kick off a, an 11-week study in 1 Thessalonians titled, Walk Worthy. This theme comes from chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul said, We were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That verse is one of those bullseyes that we come across now and then in Scripture. It is a truth worth devoting our lives to. It's a commitment that should impact every aspect of every day of our lives, as you know. Paul says, the whole reason I ministered to you and continue to minister to you was so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who called you to His kingdom and glory. That should be the heart cry of our church family. Lord, we want our lives to honor you above all else. We want to walk worthy of the gospel, walk worthy of the Lord who loved us and saved us. Now, when we think about what that means, though, ponder that thought, walk worthy of God. Who here even has a chance of doing that? Here's the answer. Every single person who is in Christ and has Christ in them can do it. Not only do we have a chance at walking worthy, we have the Holy Spirit who is guaranteeing our worthiness, our holiness when we stand before the throne of God someday. And not only is the Holy Spirit doing that, the Holy Spirit is also empowering us to live righteously in our homes and communities today. We know that God not only calls, He equips. And He not only equips, He empowers. And He not only empowers, He promises to finish the good work that He has started in you and me. Amen? God guarantees our walking worthy because we never could. Now, to help prime the pump for our study in 1 Thessalonians, I posted a couple of videos on the community homepage this past week. You can log in. You'll see them there. One is an excellent, artistic, seven-minute overview of 1 Thessalonians by The Bible Project. How many of you are familiar with The Bible Project? Seen some of their videos. Very good resources. The other is a six-minute, energetic, drive-through history on location that the kids will especially enjoy. I encourage you to watch them and study this book. Read the introduction in your study Bibles. Read through the the entire book this week. Do some meditating on your own. Ask questions of the text. Pray over this text. Pray that God would use it in your life and the lives of our church family. We do this so that when we come together on these Sunday mornings, 
we'll already be engaged with the Word. We want to come on Sunday morning with massive momentum. So how about a little bit of historical and geographical background? Paul is writing from Corinth to Thessalonica around 50 AD during which of his missionary journeys? His second, his second missionary journey. It's mapped out here for you, starting off on the right in Antioch, looping around the top on the mainland, cutting across the water and coming back down, back toward Jerusalem. So the fonts are a little small. I've highlighted a few key cities here. That's Thessalonica in the top left with the red dot. Down below that is Corinth. If you go east across the water toward the middle of the map, you have Ephesus. And again, all the way back in the lower right corner is Jerusalem. As with just about all major significant cities, Thessalonica's value was in what? Location, location, location. This waterfront city was located on a major east-west highway. You may see it there in the top, highlight, uh, underlined in green. It's the Ignatian Way or the Via Ignatia. Multiple sources estimate the population to have been between 100 and 200,000 at the time of Paul. So this was no small country town that Paul was visiting. And just as a side note, today's population is well over 800,000, perhaps close to a million. It is still a remarkable location and city. Has anyone here by chance been to Thessalonica? I would love to talk to the two of you this week, Enrico and Jerry. Paul stopped in Thessalonica on his mission trip, and as was his standard procedure, what did he often do first? Somebody say it. Went straight to the synagogue, that's right, and he preached the gospel. He preached the message of Jesus Christ as Messiah. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we hear those words and they mean one thing, but ponder how those come across to the Jews. What was Paul saying? Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that you just killed. They heard the gospel very differently than we did. But praise the Lord, God works, and a number of people believed the message, both Jews and non-Jews, men and women, as you find even a number of prominent women of the city. They responded positively, but as often also took place, a number of Jews rapidly and vehemently opposed Paul, and he had to run for his life. He continued on his mission trip southward to Berea, to Athens, and then to Corinth. And he was now writing back to the Thessalonians from Corinth with encouragement, with doctrine, with exhortation, based on the recent report that he heard from who? Who came back with him, to him with word of how the Thessalonians were doing since he left? Timothy, yes, Timothy. So he's writing based on this report. As we find over and over when we study these New Testament scriptures and the Old Testament scriptures, these truths were not written only for them. They were written for us. Second Corinthians, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, we know it well. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 
But there's a reason for all of it. And what is that? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The scriptures are meant to be life-changing. The scriptures are meant to be commissioning. So to help us get the big picture of 1 Thessalonians, I'd like us to read through this amazing letter. We've observed many times in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament records, that when the Word of God was brought before the people and read at length, God often poured out a special blessing, a unique power, a joy. And that is what we want. We also read the Scriptures like this at length to reminded, be reminded that the Scriptures speak powerfully for themselves. If all we did was read these five chapters this morning, we would be well fed. Because the power, the truth, the wisdom is in the Scripture. Scripture, as we know, defends Scripture. Scripture authenticates Scripture. It affirms itself. It explains itself. Wasn't it wonderful to hear that presented so well during the Sunday school hour? Scripture is the Word of God. And because the God of the universe is perfectly true, think about this, because He is perfectly true, everything He says is what? Truth. It is truth. That's why we believe the Bible. It's why we need the Bible. We need truth. Because what does the truth do for a person? It sets them free. And God is truth. Therefore, He is the one who sets people free. Let's pray before we read this, this epistle. Heavenly Father, give us understanding that we cannot have in our own mind. Give us conviction. Give us encouragement. Give us hope. Lord, minister truth to us through your Holy Spirit. We affirm right now as a congregation that these are the words of God. We humble ourselves before them. We eagerly anticipate them, knowing that both the encouragement and the conviction are good and wonderful. Lord, may your word be that lamp and light to us that we so desperately need. We thank you in advance for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren beloved by God, His choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, 
so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He has raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, keep that in mind, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting, encouraging, and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. 
for fear that, t- that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, Then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. 
For you are all sons of light and sons of day. For we are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also were doing. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Isn't the Word of God amazing? What do you say to such truth? Oh, we give thanks for one. We treasure it. We relish it. We depend upon it. We believe it. We honor it. There is a lifetime of wisdom in these few pages we just read. But we've only got 11 weeks. Let's go around, so let's hop to it. Chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to study the first four verses today with today, today's theme being exemplary Christianity. By the way, you may have noticed that starting with my first Corinthians sermon series last fall, these slides started looking a little nicer, a little more professional. That's not because I took lessons. It's because I stopped doing them. Uh, big thanks to Dan Ledwick for sharing his graphic uh, talents with our church family and serving the Lord. I love it. Okay, verse 1 says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. As I have the privilege of studying slowly through these words, meditating on each thought, each phrase, each word, I am so reminded that these seemingly simple and traditional introductory statements are loaded with truth and meaning. This is more than just Paul saying hello and acknowledging his two travel companions. This is more than just a casual shalom. 
peace, right? There is much more here. For example, this verse teaches us that churches aren't just religious organizations. They aren't just groups of people coming together to try and live good lives. These aren't even just people coming together to study what is called the Bible. These bodies of believers are actually in God. That is a spiritual reality that goes beyond our wildest imaginations. We who believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior are in God. He wraps us into Himself. He makes us one with Himself. In John 17, 20 to 21, Jesus uttered, uttered this phenomenal prayer when He said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, speaking of His disciples, but for those also who believe in Me through their word, that is their preaching of the gospel, that they may all be one, even as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, this is Jesus speaking, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 1 here would lack all of its value if it read, to the church of the Thessalonians, grace to you and peace. Without the in God and in Christ, the church is not the church. Without the in God, there is no grace. Ponder that. Without in God, there is no eternal peace. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him, that is, God the Father made the Son to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the new creation we just read about a minute ago. It's a spiritual miracle that only God can perform. Friends, this in God statement is the sum total of the gospel. This is what happens when we confess and repent of our sins, and when we confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, when we put our faith and trust in Him alone, those who were dead in their trespasses are now alive in the righteousness of God. Those who were once slaves to sin are now the privileged servants of the Almighty Son of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when I opened the scriptures earlier and read through this epistle and read verse 1, when I read the phrase, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that would have been an appropriate time for us to erupt in loud cheers and applause. A standing ovation for Jesus Christ would have been most appropriate. Did your heart and mine sing when we heard the words, in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I need to read verses like verse 1 more often. 
and let them sink in. I need to remind myself of how blessed beyond measure I am in God and Christ my Savior. Here's the continuing truth of verse 1, application point number 2. If you are indeed in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, then unearned, unmerited, undeserved grace and peace from God are yours as well. They are already yours as well. This wasn't Paul saying, I hope you get some today for the trials you happen to be going through. No, they already belong to the believer. These are the blessings of being in God. To be in God is to be the recipient of God's faithfulness. It's to be the recipient of His righteousness, of His being. And He is grace and peace. Paul is not wishing the grace and peace of God upon God's people. He is reminding them of their blessings. God's grace will not falter. His peace has no limits. Grace being that outer divine strength that God gives us to do His will, to live righteously in this world, etc. Peace being that, especially that inner sense of calm and trust in the perfect good and sovereign will of God and being of God. We can not only be at peace with God's will, we are at peace with God Himself. What incredible thoughts. This is in no way to minimize the harsh realities of this life. It is reminding us of our realities. In difficulty, God will be our grace, our strength. In turmoil, He will be our peace. Here's what's so striking about Paul's introduction. He is writing to a persecuted church. This is the same city that ran him out of town. This is the same city that brought Jason, who was uh, allowing Paul to stay in his home. They took Jason and other believers and tried them. They persecuted them. Paul is writing to a persecuted church. Dare I say that it's often easy for us, the American church, to smile and feel the warm fuzzies when we hear the phrase, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That salutation rings differently in the ears of the persecuted church. It rings differently when we are at the end of our own strength, when we wonder whether we can handle another trial in another day. Paul says, grace and peace are yours. You are in God, and no one can take you out. Christian friend, before we go any further, celebrate your salvation. Celebrate it. For a moment, take your eyes off your finances and just celebrate your salvation. For a moment, take your eyes off your health and celebrate and rejoice in your salvation, which cannot be taken away. You name the trial, 
Take your eyes off it for a moment and turn your eyes to Jesus and celebrate the grace and the peace of God that will accompany you through thick and thin, the grace and peace that will carry you to the end, which is actually just the beginning. Eternity. Eternity. Think about that. That's why I can't wait to get to chapter 4 together in this epistle, where Paul reminds believers that the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. If you die, don't worry. You get to go up first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage and comfort one another with these words. That truth, that reality of the coming of the Lord and the guarantee of our rescue gives a mountain of grace and peace to the believer. We may have trials, but our hero is coming back. As we study our way through this epistle, we're going to see that Paul is going to teach much on grace and peace. Look for it over the next several weeks. Grasp these truths as we go and depend on them. Let's put our faith afresh in the grace and peace of God. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. You and I both know that thanksgiving, this matter of thanksgiving, is no small matter in Christianity. Of all people, Christians are to be known as an overwhelmingly grateful people. Because of verse 1, our speech should be filled with thanksgiving. Because of verse 1, thanksgiving should rule in our worst trials. Because of verse 1, how can we ever not be grateful? I was studying Ephesians last week for my seminary class, which, by the way, the church is so graciously providing for me. I want, uh, I want to publicly thank my church family for their kindness in this way, whether you don't realize it or not. Uh, the, the board and the church voted a, about a year ago to provide me with $4,500 of classes each year. I can only assume they thought my preaching really needed it. Um, you know, I'm teasing, but... I am incredibly thankful, thankful to God for His kindness to me through you. These classes are changing my life. They're changing the excel, right, the, sti the still more and more factor that, that uh, Paul wrote about in this book. They're impacting me, and I trust they will, our church family. So back to Ephesians and how it relates to Thanksgiving. I was studying Ephesians for a class assignment last week, and I was reminded some of you know where this is going. How passionately Paul communicates the wonderful reality of our privilege and riches in Christ Jesus. The wonder of our salvation. He uses a number of phrases like, blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And the riches of His grace which He lavishes upon us. And the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus and that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. 
and to him is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. I'm reminded that as Christians, we cannot be thankful enough. But as this verse in 1 Thessalonians specifically points out, we are not only to be thankful for God's goodness to us through salvation and grace and peace, we are also to give thanks for each other. You can hit the brakes right there. That, that's a whole other story. When we look heavenward, all we see is perfection. That's easy to give thanks for. But when we look at each other, now you finish the sentence. Let's just say, it's not so perfect. Paul says here in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you. There are two brutal key words in that phrase. You heard them. Always and all. Let me be honest. There are times I don't feel like giving thanks. And there are people I don't always feel thankful for. And all God's people said, Amen. That's terrible. <laughs> but it's honest. Paul is quick by example to correct this kind of self-centered, uncaring, ungrateful, critical attitude by teaching us the timing and the extent of our gratitude for each other. Always for all. Do I even need to say more on this application point? The prayer of my heart is that I will always be able to honestly say, thank you, Lord, for every person you bring into this church family, every person you bring into my life. In order to do that, I need to recognize that God is working in and through all of us. His grace and His peace know no limits. The truth is He calls no perfect people to discovery. He calls us to serve one another, to encourage and exhort and sharpen one another, sometimes to lovingly and gently rebuke and correct one another, to help carry each other's burdens, ultimately to love one another. You can almost say that love isn't love until it hurts. At least that's, it's certainly when it's most evident. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 46 to 48, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? That must have burned to hear that. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? We in the Suko clan got to remember that, right? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. Praise the Lord for the message on love from Enrico last week. All the time, sacrificial, God-revealing love. That's what Christians are called to. And without it, we cannot be thankful for one another. All of the each other's, always. The elephant in the room question is this, 
Is there anyone in our church family that you are not thankful for? Anyone that I am not thankful for? If so, as followers of Christ, being in Him and Him being in us, we must stop sinning and give thanks. If you or I have someone in this church we wish would leave, then there's a heart change that needs to happen. We're not talking about the other person. It needs to happen in us first. As the prayer goes, something like, Lord, let there be revival and let it begin in me. In order to give thanks always for all, we must also recognize the truth of Romans chapter 8. The whole chapter, but 28, verses 28 and 29, that God has brought every person here for good reason for our benefit, including those who rub us the wrong way. God wants to do a good work in them and in us. We will likely know that our heart is right when we can genuinely give thanks. When bitterness is replaced with burden, when haughtiness is replaced with humility, when loathing is replaced with love, and I'm sure you could think of more phrases that have matching letters there. The next three points Paul mentions in the text are awesome. But they're going to be further developed throughout the book, which is my only solace in even mentioning them today and not devoting an entire sermon to each point. So look at this incredible wording in verse 3. Constantly bearing in mind, this is Paul saying, I am constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. I mentioned earlier that there is a lifetime of truth to understand and live out in this book. There is a lifetime in this phrase. These three elements in this phrase. The epic 1 Corinthians 13 is bundled into the phrase, labor of love. The entire book of James is summed up in the work of faith. The book of Romans speaks powerfully of the steadfastness of hope. Romans 15:4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. It is with the greatest of intention that Paul brings the reader's attention and their focus onto these three attributes of the Thessalonian church. Remember that throughout chapter 1, which we'll look at more next week. Paul is commending this particular body of believers for their exemplary Christianity. He says, and he doesn't often say things like this to the various churches he writes. He says, you're doing it right. Verse 7, you became an example to all the believers. He clarifies, not only in your church, not only in your city, not even Thessalonica, not even just in Macedonia, but also in Achaia. That's the other half of Greece. He says you're doing it right. Everybody is talking about your faith and the change they see in you. Verse 8, he says, there's nothing left for me to tell people. Your reputation goes before you. Would you agree with me? We would do well to see what in the world this small band of Christians was doing. For starters, their faith worked. 
it behaved. It put action to talk. This is the James lesson, that it doesn't really matter what you say only. Yes, it's important what you say. But it doesn't end there. It's what you do. It doesn't matter what you think only. It's what you do. It doesn't matter what you say you believe. It's what you do. The talk and the walk have to match. And that is exemplary Christianity. We have to ask ourselves, what is my faith doing these days? How does my faith behave at home? I mean, we all have faith in church, or at least some appearance or some form of faith. What is my faith doing in my marriage? What is it doing in my relationship with my kids and, and my friends? Is my faith doing something at school and at work? Or do the gears tend to stop moving when I go out into society? Heaven forbid, when I go into my own home. This commendation by Paul is no small condemnation, uh, commendation. He says, you're not just saying the right thing, you're doing the right thing. And that is an example to this entire country. We as a church family must understand that having a strong statement of faith is not enough. Here's one you probably haven't heard before. Expositional preaching is not enough. Paul says, show it to me. I want to see your faith working. What does he see next about this group of believers? Their love labors. I don't need to repeat Enrico's sermon from last week. Love labors. That means it, it doesn't just work. The word labor here refers to working hard. I mean, isn't it interesting that you attach this word to love and not to faith? And we can't read into that too much. Take scripture as a whole. But in this moment, in this instance, he's stressing that their love went above and beyond. It worked hard. It toiled. The picture is that of a farmer. Their love pushes through the heat and the dust of the day. Row after row after row after row, miles and miles of farmland. Love labors. We all know that it's easy to love a little. It's easy to love in return for love, like Jesus pointed out in Matthew 5. That's not what Paul commended these Christians for. He said, your sacrificial brotherly love sweats from your brow. It labors till the muscles burn from sunup to sundown, you love all the time. And all the churches in this part of the world see the difference. Friends, if our love labored, if our faith worked, I am convinced that all the churches in this community would see it and be talking about it. Is that what we're doing? So much more could be said on this, and it will. Again, Paul is going to teach on these three points also throughout the rest of this epistle, so watch for them. Third, Paul describes them as having a hope that is steadfast, that courage of mind, that faith in the future does not come and go for these believers. It doesn't give up when the going gets toughest, not just tough, but toughest. That's the ongoing effect of grace and peace, by the way. Grace and peace give us hope. 
That's the kind of hope that we find only in Christ. Let's be honest, there's very little hope in circumstance. Have you thought about that much? There's very little hope in circumstance. Do you know what happens at the end of your life? You die. That's the end of the circumstance. And if you're blessed with a lot of years from what I hear, you, you kind of watch your body parts fail one at a time toward the end. That's the hope of circumstance that many have to look forward to. Hope is not found in this brief life, but in the eternal one to come. Hope is found in the one who was raised from the dead. Hope is found in God. Hope is not found in the brevity of our circumstances from the day of our birth to the day of our death, but in the eternal one. We're talking about the hope of heaven versus hell. If you've got Christ, you've got hope. Know Christ? Well, I would ask you, what hope do you have? At best, without Christ, all a person can hope for is a good life. But even that ends in death. But what if this miracle that we call life, that we are experiencing right now, doesn't end with the death of the physical body? What if there is a God who created what science can hardly even begin to figure out? What if there is life after this? What if there is evil and purity? What if there is hell and heaven like the Bible says there is? Friend, if you're searching for truth, I commend you for being in this place today. That's a, that's a leap of faith all in itself. Considering what the Bible has to say, I challenge you to read the Bible for yourself. Think it through for yourself. See if you don't come to the same conclusion that most everyone here has, and that is that this is the best truth they can find. This is the best truth worth betting all of this life on. We have found this truth to be unparalleled. It's life-changing. It's hope-giving beyond anything else we can find in this world. John chapter 3 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's the message of the Bible right there. It goes on to say, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. We're all sinners. That's the reality of this life. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth, would you agree there's the work of faith he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as have it having been wrought in God. I mean, one book affirms the other, doesn't it? 
The scriptures affirm themselves. They're speaking the same thing so perfectly, so consistently as we saw this morning in the study of Sunday school. He who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. That's a lot to wrap your mind around. But I assure you, if you are searching, it is worth digging into. What do those words mean? If you have any questions about what it means to be in God, to receive grace and peace from heaven, to have God work in you faith and love and hope, please don't hesitate to chat with me, or Pastor Mark or anyone here. We love opening the Bible and showing others why we have hope why we believe we have found truth. We'd love to show it to you so you can choose for yourself. But verse 3 isn't finished yet. Paul says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a very important observation to make here that we touched on already. That phrase, in our Lord Jesus Christ, is repeated for a reason. It defines the prior three short phrases. The verse doesn't say steadfastness of hope in your present circumstances. It doesn't talk about a labor of love in your family or a work of faith on the mission field. Yes, those are the applications. Those are the proving grounds. But we must be careful to discern these three truths properly according to what the text says. The hope isn't that our problem will go away. The hope isn't that the trial will soon wane. Our hope is actually in our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a world of difference between the two. This is a beautiful, freeing reality for the believer. The work of our faith the labor of our love, the steadfastness of our hope is not dependent upon our best efforts. Our faith, our love, our hope is in our Lord Jesus Christ. His perfect efforts, His perfect righteousness, His perfect hope, his perfect love, his perfect faith, not our own. Christian friend, don't make the devastating mistake of confusing this truth. When our faith works, it's actually Christ doing a miracle in us. When our love labors, it's actually Christ working in us. When our hope perseveres, it's actually Christ in us who gives us a hope that does not fail. As we said before, God doesn't just call us, He equips us. And He doesn't just equip us, He empowers us. Thankfully, He not only empowers us, He promises to finish the good work He started. The verse continues, in the presence of our God and Father. This is a simple but significant factor in exemplary Christianity. God is watching. God is near. 
He is present, and we need to live every day of our life in the awareness of His presence. As the verse purposely points out, He's not just our God, He's our Father. My mind goes numb when I try to pair those two together. Can the God of the universe really be my dad, my spiritual father? Can someone so enormously powerful to create all that exists also be so personal? Yes, a thousand times. For these young Thessalonian believers, it was the daily presence of God, their father, and their awareness of this reality that tremendously impacted their work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. When God is far from us, or should I say, when we wander far from Him, it knocks the wind right out of the sails of our faith and our love and our hope. But God is never far off to those who seek Him. Isaiah 55, 6-9, Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Aren't you glad that our faith and our love and our hope, our grace, our peace is not dependent upon our lowly earth? level abilities. They depend on the God whose abilities are all the way out in outer space. That's the difference. Let's wrap up with this next phrase in verse 4. Knowing, brethren beloved by God, His choice of you. There's something we can be certain of here. Something we can know if you are in God, it's because God lovingly, sovereignly chose you. That truth strikes confusion and angst in some, and it strikes grace and peace in others. Not because they have it all figured out, but because there is an immeasurable comfort and hope in knowing that our salvation was not based on us. Heaven forbid, actually. This phrase in verse 4 simply reminds us again that the prior described evidences of salvation, the faith, the love, and the hope, are not the result of the good intentions of the believer, but rather the work of God, the fruit of the Spirit, the results of grace and peace that come only from above. God in His sovereignty, a sovereignty that only He can understand, chose us before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. John 6, 44, no man can come to me, this is Jesus speaking, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him and I will raise him up at that last day. Verse 65, no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. This is our final application point. Regardless of where any of us stands 
or leans when it comes to the whole free will and election or predestination discussion, regardless of where we stand. Can we agree on this? When we get to heaven, we won't be able to take any of the credit for our salvation. We won't be able to take any of the credit for our righteousness. And consequently, we won't be able to claim any of the glory. Those two are inseparable. If you can take some credit, you can take some glory. No credit, no glory. I have to admit what's, what Romans 3 and the rest of Scripture teaches, that there was no self-righteousness in me that moved my heart to seek God, to believe in Him, and to submit to Him as my Lord and Savior. I was actually dead in my trespasses. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He saved us, and now as we are learn and as we are reminded in the text we studied today, He alone continues to give us grace and peace. It's not something we have to muster up for ourselves. He alone does the work of faith and love and hope. This is the message of hope and faith that we are so called to share with the lost. God can do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. And in the end, God will get all the glory. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these precious words of Scripture. Our times together on these Sunday mornings in the Word and in our daily devotions are just a taste of the wonder of seeing you for all of eternity. How we look forward to that day. Until then, Lord, help us to understand and to experience the grace and the peace that comes only from you, not from us figuring out our situations or working harder in them. Lord, help us to understand this, this deep spiritual reality, this, this happening of God coming into a person and bringing a person into himself so that true faith can work perfectly so that true love can labor to the end, and so that true hope will not fail. How futile of us to think that we could accomplish these things in our own strength. Lord, we don't understand the mechanics of grace and peace, but you do, and that's all that counts. Lord, help us to seek after you to obey you, to honor you, to love you more than all else, and to love our neighbor as ourself, and then witness you doing the miracles of grace and peace that we have looked at today. Thank you, Lord, for your, your word, its faithfulness to us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.